Section one of a defensive idealism by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter three. Some ultimate questions of psychology. Section one. In what then does individuality consist? Not in our memories, even supposing that they are pure, for we have seen that they presuppose us not in our individual experiences in the fact that such and such things happen to us and to nobody else for this is to plant our individuality outside ourselves in precisely those events over which it has least control besides we have no reason to suppose that our experience is unique and every reason to suppose the contrary still when we reflect we do suppose it in the sense not that our experiences are in any way extraordinary but that precisely this order and arrangement of experiences which we call ours has never occurred before but no possible arrangement of experiences will yield or make recognizable a self that is not presupposed in the arrangement and has had no hand in it we have a sense of individuality we find if we look for it that we have a sort of self-feeling i do not mean self-consciousness i am not thinking of our general feeling of possessing a body a feeling which is made up of muscular sensations more or less insistent and of visceral sensations more or less vague i am not thinking of what is called feeling tone for this may differ if not from moment to moment from day to day or even from hour to hour all these feelings which come to us through our bodies help our sense of individuality but i am thinking of something more akin to memory of that feeling which is not memory but which accompanies it and gives it the quality which makes it ours saturating it like a perfume staining it like a colour always recognisable as the same perfume and the same stain to place our individuality in self-feeling is so far satisfactory that it does at least attempt to explain why our memories are recognisable as ours it is as if we scented ourselves out all along our track i may say i do not know whether my experience is really mine or whether i am simply part of an experience labelled mine for convenience sake or granting that i am i i still do not know from moment to moment whether i am the same self or whether another self arises on the top of me and takes possession of my memories but i do know that something reacts with the same feeling to all my memories all along the line that it is reacting now to the contents of my immediate consciousness and that when i dream i shall find it in my dreams and i take it that this something either is me or involves somewhere a continuous and not a discrete me does self-feeling yield the secret of individuality no self-feeling helps to fix our floating sense of individuality and so far justifies us in calling it self-feeling and no doubt it enters largely into the building up of the superstition of the self but our sense of individuality is one thing and the existence of the self another mere self-feeling goes no way towards proving that the self is more than a superstition self-feeling though a fairly continuous accompaniment of memory is vague 
and from its peculiar vibrant emotional quality we may suspect it to be nothing more than a sort of general reverberation of the memories themselves even if it be something more than that it is something that accompanies consciousness and not anything that could conceivably bind it together and make it one and if personal identity is nothing more than such an accompaniment it will fare no better than if it were nothing more than memory but what about the peculiar vibrant and emotional quality we noted this accompaniment of self-feeling is not always the same it has degrees of intensity it attaches itself more to some memories than others it is stirred to a stronger glow by some associations than by others it seems to know and to remember almost on its own it then has preferences in short self-feeling this indestructible haunter of memories has about it more than a suggestion of the will to live in its aspect of interest and desire are we to say then that the secret of personal identity and individuality is to be found in will this certainly seems to bring us nearer to the root of the matter and it has the advantage of being definitely thinkable as antecedent to experience and therefore to memory and of being traceable in the lowest conceivable germ of personality the will to live the need to appear to grow to reproduce the self to gather experience and appear more and more in a sense it is the stronghold of individuality for it is with his will that the individual fences himself off and asserts himself against other individuals it is with his will in the form of interest and love that he draws near to them and is drawn and so makes his personality greater through theirs and theirs through him and at every stage of his biological ascension it is his will that is the mainspring of his sublimations it is through his will through his need want desire interest affection love that he appears as self-determined it is his will as energy that whether in resistance or obedience knits him to the forces of the real world outside himself it is his will that in submitting or aspiring in adoration or in longing links him to the imminent and transcendent reality that he calls god the perfect individual is the person perfectly adapted to reality through the successive sublimations of his will it is clear that the will of such a creature is not any more than his perception or his memory concerned with action only before we go farther let us take stock of our results so far we have refused to identify the self entirely with its own memories to find the secret of personality in the fact that such and such experiences have been ours for this is to plant our personality outside in extraneous and probably accidental happenings without taking account of its interior reactions besides begging the possible question of its existence we found a faint aroma of selfhood in the self-feeling that accompanies a consciousness and though this may be and very probably is due to some inner working of a self and though it has a warmth and intimacy that we look for in vain in what we call self-consciousness it was not comprehensive enough for us to hope to find in it the secret of selfhood so far as that secret is discoverable at all we seem to find it in the will the will seems to us at once the most ancient 
the most comprehensive and the most intimately self-revealing of the powers of self it seems the surest and the most conspicuous bridge from the inner to the outer world also we have seen every reason for supposing that processes and actions which are now involuntary and unconscious were once conscious and willed we had even some reason for supposing that the very machinery of such processes may have been built up gradually under the impulse of the will that the will working through countless generations may be itself the builder and the engineer of our bodily and mental machinery we considered the theory of vitalism with its assumption of matter as an independent outside solid substance offering itself to the grip of spirit and carved by our needs as by a knife we found that this theory and its attempt to base perception and memory upon action only ends in contradiction and dilemma and we concluded that to refer will likewise to action only is to ignore the actual range of desire and interest and love so wide is that range that we might well rest in the conclusion apparently forced on us that the will is the self and yet if we were to put our conclusion to the test we should find that though it has served us so far infinitely better than self-feeling and memory though so to speak there is more self in will than in memory or self-feeling it still falls short of complete selfhood because though intimate and comprehensive more intimate than either memory or self-feeling it is not comprehensive enough not nearly so comprehensive in fact as memory it will not give us the synthesis we want the synthesis of all our states of consciousness itself included so far as will is a state of consciousness at all that is to say so far as consciousness includes states which are not states of willing but states of feeling perceiving remembering conceiving judging reasoning and imagining the unity of consciousness cannot be found in will we have now three alternatives a complete irreconcilable dualism between will and idea a dualism that may fall outside consciousness between the will as the unconscious and consciousness as the idea or that may fall inside consciousness itself in which case it is all up with the unity of consciousness or a partial dualism within consciousness which allows of the interpenetration of will and idea and of interaction between them without necessarily admitting selfhood as the unity of all conscious states these two forms of dualism will face us equally whether we regard consciousness as a by-product of the physical mechanism or as wholly or partially independent of it or there is a unity of selfhood of personal identity prior to consciousness as its condition or arising with it at any rate in no sense arising from it a unity in which alone will and idea can be held together for it may be argued it is argued with extreme plausibility that will and idea are in no more awkward position than any other two states of consciousness considered out of relation with each other and that when they are taken in relation the very relations themselves provide all the plaster necessary to stick them together that this will hold good whether the relations are regarded as thought relations in consciousness or as real relations outside it that if these relations do not and cannot bind 
there is no conceivable unity that added to them will do their binding for them while if they do bind that is enough it is at any rate all we have any right to ask for instance will and idea come together and are sufficiently held together in purpose or design thus the unity of selfhood is either powerless or superfluous this argument is much more formidable than it looks at first sight so formidable that it can only be dealt with later on when we are considering the ultimate questions of metaphysics for the moment our problem is psychological needless to say the hypothesis of unity is thoroughly incompatible with the mechanical by-product theory of consciousness and does not necessarily go with the partial independence theory in itself now i have tried to make it clear under separate heads that personal identity is not memory is not self-feeling is not will but it may be just possible that this disposing of under separate heads was the secret vice of my whole procedure and that though the self cannot be any one of the three it may very well be all three taken together personal identity the self the unity of consciousness may be the sum of our states of consciousness taken together and it may be nothing more in such sort that when there are no more states of consciousness there is no more personal identity and though i have stated repeatedly that this unity and this sum presuppose personal identity i am aware that logical presupposition is not enough unless it can be shown that this unity is more than a sum and that it is of such a sort that it is not only unthinkable but unworkable without personal identity it should not be forgotten that there was another alternative the mechanical by-product theory the theory on which consciousness is as it were given off like a gas by the neural processes which are its physical antecedents and correlates is resolvable into them and ceases when they cease if i have not paused to dispose of this theory before going further it is because i mean to return to it also later on meanwhile if we succeed in establishing personal identity as a working hypothesis the indispensable condition of consciousness as we know it the importance for psychology of the by-product theory will collapse in the process but personal identity must do something for its living before we can be allowed to presuppose it in the light-hearted manner of the foregoing and as i took samuel butler as a classic authority on the behaviour of the psyche in its human and prehuman past i am going to take mr william mcdougall as a classic authority and on the whole the clearest simplest and most convincing authority on the behaviour of the psyche here and now not that the two behaviours can be separated or that any modern psychologist would dream of separating them but that while one large part of mr mcdougall's work necessarily overlaps butler's a still larger part deals with psychic powers and processes all the synthetic and higher mental functions which butler leaves untouched and though a great deal of mr mcdougall's work is necessarily founded on that of william james every psychologist's work is bound to cover the same ground as his predecessors and mr mcdougall would be the last to claim a superior originality it also covers ground that has appeared since the publication of william james's principles of psychology 
besides emphasizing several important points of difference and disengaging the ultimate issue if anything with greater clearness and directness and simplicity so simple and direct and clear is mr mcdougall that he puts a pistol to our heads and presents us with two alternatives and two alone psychophysical parallelism and animism it should be stated at once for fear of misapprehension that mr mcdougall does not make his psychology a diving-board for a plunge into metaphysics he tells us in his preface that metaphysical dualism is an implication he is anxious to avoid but he will have none of psychic monism on any system he affirms a distinct dualism between soul and body and it should be borne in mind that in the absence of any higher unifying principle his animism lands us logically in the pluralistic universe of william james still he not only allows us to have a soul but his aim is to make us see that our consciousness being what it is animism is the only theory which will be found to work before he consolidates his position he overhauls all the alternative philosophical theories and finds that all but two are reducible to some form or other of psychophysical parallelism the two outstanding forms are both monisms and both by-product theories physical monism or materialism which regards consciousness as the illusory by-product of the mechanical process of matter epiphenomenalism and subjective idealism or solipsism or complete egoism which regards the whole universe including matter and its mechanical processes as an illusory by-product of the self alone the three remaining forms are grouped under the head of parallelism namely number one strict psychophysical parallelism which regards physical processes and psychic processes as running on two parallel lines that never meet and have no branch lines that intersect them each line representing a distinct and different system of causation according to this view there is no sense in which the two may be considered one number two phenomenal parallelism which regards physical processes and psychic processes as two aspects modes or appearances of one underlying reality they run on purely phenomenal parallel lines that never meet the underlying reality is spinoza's substance or god kant's thing in itself herbert spencer's unknown and unknowable schopenhauer's and von hartmann's unconscious all these philosophers agree in regarding their underlying reality as neither mind nor matter and in declaring that though it might be a necessary postulate it could not be known they all affirm the complete phenomenal dualism of mind and matter and mr mcdougall is one with their opponents in demonstrating that their metaphysical monism does nothing at all to bridge the gulf but in deference to the underlying unknown they all figure as holders of identity hypothesis a number three psychical monism or objective idealism identity hypothesis b which regards all physical processes and nature the sum of them as products of thought it is the redoubtable theory of the world as arising in consciousness 
i am following mr mcdougall rather than my own inclination in introducing the objective idealist as a parallel liner but mr mcdougall's classification will serve my purpose as well for his sinister intention is to expose the latent dualism of that system not in the interests of any metaphysical monism he may have up his sleeve nor yet of a pluralistic universe for he does not exalt his souls to ultimate principles but for the sake of the cross correspondence he is to prove i do not think that mr mcdougall's dealings with psychical monism are always entirely satisfactory objective idealists might object to being called psychical monists and they would certainly be surprised to find their universe described as the shadow of thought again i think mr mcdougall somewhat underrates the importance of strict psychophysical parallelism which is after all his real or at any rate his legitimate adversary for in an encounter with any of the alternative systems he runs the risk of attacking ultimate metaphysical principles with merely psychological weapons that is to say he may be carrying an argument that holds good in one sphere into another where it may not hold good at all moreover his own theory of animism interaction and all is by no means incompatible with identity hypothesis a for which the soul itself may figure as a phenomenon or aspect of the underlying reality we will see how he disposes of his five alternative theories materialism and subjective idealism the mechanical by-product and self-alone theories fall in easy prey materialism has on its side a formidable array of arguments from facts it can point to certain undeniable and invariable sequences of cause and effect all sorts of disturbances and alterations of consciousness arise when poisons are introduced into the blood from the excitement or stupor of intoxication to the profound coma of bright's disease again my brain processes slacken down and i pass into the unconsciousness of dreamless sleep they are interfered with by the rupture of a blood vessel and either special departments of my consciousness are interfered with or i lose consciousness altogether or for so long as the interference lasts that is to say according to the extent and persistence of the lesion my brain processes cease altogether and the inference seems too obvious to state and yet the extreme conclusion does not follow unless materialism can show that physical processes give rise to consciousness in the first place if they cannot there would be no need to infer that their ceasing must cause its extinction and ultimately the argument for materialism rests on two laws and a corollary the law of causation according to which the cause passes over into its effect and is discernible therein and the law of the conservation of energy according to which all the energy in the universe is a constant quantity which can neither be added to nor diminished the corollary being the biological law of the continuity of evolution mr mcdougall points out in body and mind pages one fifty and one fifty one that the mechanical theory of consciousness saves the law of conservation of energy at the expense of the law of causation for there is no sense in which it can be said that molecular change the presumed cause of sensation passes over into its effect it also breaks the biological law 
since however undefined however dim the borders between the conscious and the unconscious there could hardly be a greater breach of continuity than the appearance of consciousness when it finally emerges at some point in the course of evolution end of chapter three section one recording by expatriate in bangor maine